because you can imagine like three people on a hill and if we're all looking in one direction we, none of us can see what's going on behind us if all three of us look in different directions we have a nice world view of what's going on but to do that i have to really trust the person next to me is going to accurately deliver to me what they're seeing from their perspective and in turn in a reciprocal relationship i'm going to tell them what i'm seeing I've been waiting for this one. How do you change someone's mind? Think about it politically, personally, culturally. Can you change someone's mind about conspiratorial thinking? So I stumbled on this podcast last summer called You Are Not So Smart, which is hilarious in the title. And it was an episode about vaccine hesitancy. And what struck me about this episode was that it was the first show I ever heard where it not only identified the problem of why we're so divided in our beliefs, but gave a very detailed breakdown with seven different experts on how to change someone's deep-seated beliefs. It literally broke down how to solve the problem. I hadn't heard that anywhere else. I've heard tons of podcasts talking about the problem, but not like, where do we go from here? How do we solve it? And uh, it, it was just great. And so this podcast, the host, David McRaney, dives deep into the psychology behind why people believe what they believe and how to change it, How like the art of persuasion. So once again, my brain lit up like a firefly and I was determined to have him come on Culture Changers. And you know what? He broke it all down for us today. David McBrainy is a science journalist and an internationally best-selling author, podcaster, lecturer, and he created the You Are Not So Smart podcast, the book, and the blog. He wrote. He also wrote the books You Are Now Less Dumb and How to Beat Your Brain and has his new book called How Minds Change, all about the surprising science of belief, opinion, and persuasion. I love the description. What leads reasonable, intelligent, scientifically curious people to believe the earth is flat? Self-delusion expert and psychology nerd David McRaney sets out to discover not just what it takes to influence others, but why we believe it in the first place. Anyway, make sure you text this podcast out to your most curious friends immediately. And while you do that, are you on my weekly email list yet? Go to allisonhair.com, leave me your email there for more personal updates directly from me. Here is my chat with David McRaney. Got to start right out of the gate. So you are an ex-conspiracy theorist, had a big YouTube following. A, a no, nine- I'm not a, I wasn't an ex-conspiracy theorist. Don't, let's not do that part. Oh, okay. Uh, I no, totally no, no. had that wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just because I was telling you the story probably in a, in a mushy kind of way. Uh, I, I was surrounded by people who had, I was fascinated by conspiracy theorists and surrounded by people who uh, have, like everybody else, family members who are conspiracy theorists. But more than that, I was doing shows about conspiratorial thinking mm. in which I was being very cynical. I was telling people like, yeah, this is a kind of person that you should understand. This is a kind of thinking you should understand. Uh be careful, don't fall into this, because once you're in it, there's no way out. And I'm sorry if you're trying to help and change people in your lives, but 
you know, there's a place that once they cross that line, it's like, you know, becoming a vampire or something. Once they, once they've been bitten, it's over. Yeah. And now that's a really interesting. Yeah. But uh, I didn't, I, 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 I remember very clearly my sort of incepting moment. I was, I did, like I was invited to a, to do a lecture with Ogilvy and they have a division called Ogilvy change. And this is a big PR company. They do things like the commercial, like remember those old dove commercials where the, the person, they didn't t- tell you how good the product was. They told, they sort of uh, emphasized the lifestyle of a person who would like to, who would be a, a consumer of Dove. Yeah. And they, they consumed a lot. They uh, emphasized uh, body positivity before that was sort of a term, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's what that division works on. And I did a lecture there. And in the Q&A, someone said, I have a family member who believes Barack Obama wasn't born in the United States and they're a birther. Um, the birth, they think the birth certificate, it's fake. Uh, what, how do I, how do I help this person how, see the truth? And I remember being very cynical and saying to that person, like, well, you just can't. But, uh, I also felt really gross when I did that. I felt like, it seems like a, I, I don't like giving cynical advice, especially about change. Um, but I was giving that kind of advice. And then at the, at the same time that was happening, the norms in the United States about same-sex marriage, about LGBTQ rights in general were changing very rapidly. And I had grown up in Mississippi uh, where there was still intense um, bigotry toward LGBT people. And I had seen it firsthand uh, with, with family members and friends, people who were, or who were closeted and, and, and fighting for their rights in the best way they could. And I, when, the, when everything changed, it changed so fast that it was just intensely fascinating to me. Like, like I had to wrestle with the fact that, oh no, people definitely can change their minds about things that they thought they were absolutely certain about. Mm-hmm. And I got a book about, uh, about rapid social changes and it was a political science book. And in the book, it, it outlined changes like, um, um, uh, during suffrage, during uh, civil rights, during uh, the early days of, of the LGBT movements, it outlined things like marijuana nor- uh, laws and and, and uh, tobacco, even like hemlines and and like facial hair yeah. and stuff like that. And there was this pattern in all of the changes, which was you have this long, steady status quo, and then a very rapid shift in public opinion, and then a new status quo, and this shift kept happening, and it looked just like something I'd already read about and knew a little bit about called punctuated equilibrium, which is in biology when there's no pressure to change, it can seem like species are stable. And then when the environment changes, the species change in response almost immediately. And you end up with punctuated equilibrium. And all that's fascinating from a political science sociology perspective. And I talk about it in the book, but what I wanted to know was like, what's going on in people's brains? Like, yeah. like what happens in your brain when you change your mind? What happens in your brain when you resist changing your mind? And when we do change our minds in ways in which we look back and can't believe that we ever believed, felt, or behaved in a, in a, in a way that we don't do today, um, what has happened? Like what has changed? And so that became this intense obsession. And I, and I start that obsession with conspiracy theorists. So the very, the book begins by going into nine 11 truther world, which is people who believe that nine 11 was an inside job and that the buildings were, um, you know, they, they had explosives inside of them and the government blew them up and everything. And the people on board the airplanes weren't real and all sorts of stuff like that. And I just went deep into the, that world because I had found someone there who had 
drastically changed their minds and had left that world. And I wanted to understand through their story what was going on. And the reason I had to do that was because when I approached psychologists from doing the podcast for so long, I had a nice bank of people I could reach out to mm. and they could lead me to other experts that I wasn't familiar with. When I asked them, uh, hey, can you tell me how people change their minds and what, what was the psychology behind the change in norms of same-sex marriage? I kept getting the same answer. It was like, we don't know. Like you're talking about, this is like, that's, that's the bleeding edge of, of social science. This is something that you can find people researching it, but I can't give you a definite answer. And then I found a belief researcher who had studied belief for 40 plus years. And I asked, Hey, could you define the word belief for me? Like explain it to me like a five-year-old. And I remember him leaning back in his chair and being like, Oh, well, that's a tough one. I'm like, this is what you've studied for 40 years. <laughs> the word belief. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he said, that's why it's difficult to define that word. And so I realized that um, I couldn't just do something. I couldn't do that sort of toe tapping, hacky sort of science writing where it's just Wikipedia with jokes, where you just go read a bunch of research papers and tell people what they say. I was going to have to go out into the world and sort of experience people who have changed their minds drastically, uh, activist groups who people change their minds on purpose, persuasion pe experts who persuade and teach persuasion. And, um, and then bring that back to experts and say, what was happening here? What's going on here? And that's, and that, that actually worked. And it made my, my editors are very happy that I actually <laughs> yeah. came up with a way to do this after pitching this idea. And um, so that's how the, that's how the book goes. I, I spend time with um, people who change their mind in drastic ways. I go to Westboro Baptist church and talk to people. Oh, I went to Westboro. I, I went to Westboro Baptist church. <laughs> I love cults. Bring on all the cults. <laughs> I went to Westboro Baptist church's Valentine's day services. And then afterward oh I went to, um, I went to the Rainbow House, which is across the street. Uh, it's a halfway house for uh, LGBT youth, um, and they they, paid, they bought a house across from Westboro and painted it rainbow. Um, wow! And then and then I spent time with people who had left Westboro Baptist Church. Uh, uh, Megan Phelps Roper, Zach Roper, um, Zach Phelps. I mean, um, and these um, and, and asked them, you know, what what was the what happened in your life that, that led you to change? I asked former conspiracy theorists what led you. How did you change your mind? What, what were the circumstances? And then I went to people like um, I went to groups of people who changed minds professionally, and that's when the real epiphanies began because I, I spent time with um, and I'll talk about these in detail. I just want to give you a little overview. I went to I spent time with people in uh, Los Angeles who engage in something called deep canvassing. They go door to door and knock on people's doors and change people's minds about uh, or influence their attitudes about um, wedge issues. Uh, I spent time with street epistemology people there. And those are people in, that started in Texas, but they're around the world now. And they have a method for um, for shifting perspectives on things that works really well. Street spent epistemology with, is fascinating. So I learned super about that from your vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, I had yeah, to yeah. literally write it down because I'd never heard of it and figure out how to spell <laughs> it. But then I started watching the videos of how you break down somebody's belief. And I think mm -hmm. what's interesting about that, if I could pause for a minute, David, oh, go ahead. is that when, you know, when, when the way the political division has pitted us in a way that you have to be on the extreme. So your view is that the other person, the person that doesn't agree with you is on the extreme. And mm -hmm. so from a street epistemology perspective, asking the question on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to get a vaccine or not? And mm -hmm. a lot of the answers seem to be so much more surprising when you are not coming at it from a place of judgment, but asking where they are and and you know if you're a four what would 
you know, why are you a four instead of a one? You know, mm -hmm. like what what would bring it up higher? Can you explain a little bit about sure that that science behind that? Because I think, you know, when we're thinking about um changing people's minds. I think we desperately want to connect with each other, but we feel so polarized. We feel forced to be polarized, you know, like to have to be in one camp or the other. Yeah. Well, the thing, so I, all these groups, it was, there was street epistemology, deep canvassing, um, um, and, uh, smart politics, some others. And the thing that fascinated me initially was that these groups had never met each other. Some of them had no experience with the underlying science behind what they were doing yet they all had come up with methods that were almost identical and the steps hmm. even if the steps were were uh interpreted a little differently or they had different wording they were in the same order and i was it, what i kept thinking was like this is like if you're trying to build the first airplane no matter where you build it on earth it's going to look kind of the same because physics is the same wherever you are on the planet and it seemed pretty obvious to me that the underlying uh, mechanisms that are taking place in a human brain during a persuasive attempt are, are going to be roughly the same. So that means there must be some universality, which means there has to be a science behind it. And uh, that's what led me finally back to finding people who could explain it and give me all the particulars. Now, the, the, <laughs> that, ends, that ended up being like 300,000 words of, of material that had to be cut down to uh, roughly 100,000. <laughs> because you could talk, you could write 100 books about this once you start getting into it, because each element of it is very complex and nuanced and has its own genealogy of ideas. With these persuasive techniques, um, uh, what it boils down to is, is technique rebuttal versus topic rebuttal. Um, before I can explain that, let me lay a couple of foundational principles. One is when you want to change somebody's mind, the most important question uh, you need to ask is why. You need to ask a question of yourself first, which is why is this something you want to do? Um, if you don't understand the motivations behind your desire to shift somebody else's attitude, change their confidence in a belief or rearrange their value system, you, I would consider what you're doing to be, uh, it, it could, it could move, it could drift into the realm of coercion. How do you assess why though? How do you That's assess a question, whether right? it is like, a coercion versus, you know, like this, this is for the good of the greater good or is this because i feel alone in my that's this is why i want people to ask that question first because i feel these tools are very powerful and i feel like it, it would be unethical and immoral to hand these tools over to someone who hasn't asked themselves first what is their intention what is their motivation what is the purpose mm -hmm. of what they're doing because the people who disagree with you likely also feel they're doing it for, they did that they, their mission is to create more good in the world mm -hmm. and uh that means that you might get into a situation where your debate, you feel you're in a debate and the debate, the problem with the debate is that there's a winner and a loser and nobody wants to be a loser. And the problem with the debate is that the, the, the idea is that, um, this is my cat, Simon. He wants to be part of this. <laughs> um, the idea with the debate also is, um, what you're trying to get to at the end of it is I'm right and you're wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you get to that point, you feel like you've, that's the, the, the everything is concluded. What's missing from that, though, is, is the con is the possibility that we're both wrong or that we're both right, but seeing it from two different perspectives. And you will never get to that if you get stuck into the, the debate frame. You have to stay in the conversation frame, but probably it's better worded as stay in the we're trying to solve a mystery together frame. Mm, that and the mystery so hard, is what though. is the truth. Right. So the way to get into that is... Uh, First, so after you've asked this question yourself of why do you want to do this, which just helps you get into a more like to, to get into this frame for yourself, um, 
ask yourself what it is that you want to change because uh, the word, the phrase change someone's mind is, is poorly defined. Some, some cultures don't even have this phrase. Um, I say in the book to just to, to focus on three at three uh, aspects of human psychology, which would be attitudes, uh, attitudes, beliefs, and values. And you, you can, we can define these very simply, which is an attitude is a valenced emotional response to a concept. So it's a positive or negative emotional reaction to an idea. Uh, uh, it's, uh, if I say, uh, uh, a home baked app, home baked apple pie, they like, like if you, if you think that is a good thing, that is, you have a positive attitude toward this thing. Yeah. If I say, um, uh, industrial medical waste, uh, you probably think, oh, that's not something I, I want to, to have at Thanksgiving and you have a negative <laughs> attitude toward that. So, uh, positive and negative are, they're valenced and you can, because we're complex, nuanced human beings have both positive and negative emotions about a, a concept. So you would have ambivalence, you'd be ambivalent. Um, and it's important just as they say in a uh, girl interrupted ambivalence, you know, this does not mean you you're in the middle. This means you are both, you feel both and we mm -hmm. can do that. So that's an attitude. You might want to change, shift someone's attitude on something. If you, if they think something that is good, you think is bad or, or mm. vice versa. Mm. Um, this is something that it's easy to get stuck in these words and get sort of, and kind of get, uh, slot, you find yourself slogging through a semantic swamp of, 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 of like definitions if you're not careful, because people will often say they want to change someone's mind about, let's say in politics, like the president, you believe the president, this is a good president. And I want to show you how they're not. That's not a belief. That's an attitude. Like my feeling toward the president is an attitude. And the method of change shifting someone's attitude is going to be different from shifting someone's belief. Oh now, my may... God, that's so nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the belief, no, this attitude is likely supported by beliefs and the, but the avenue toward shifting that, that the uh, avenue toward shifting the attitude you might intuitively assume would be, I need to change these person's beliefs that support that attitude. And I'm going to knock down these facts they think are facts with my better facts. But that's not necessarily so. Their, mm -hmm. their attitude may be driven by something completely outside of belief and factual stuff. Their attitude might be driven by identity. The attitude might be driven by motivations that are outside of the realm of fact-based conclusions. So that's Can important. Can I pause for a second yeah. there too? Because I think what I learned from you know some of your podcast episodes is that when when you try and attack somebody with facts, so this this makes sense in terms of like the attitude, the beliefs, all of those. But when you try and attack somebody with more facts, like I'm going to send you a video and you're going to see the way I see that, like if you have somebody who is big into MSNBC and you say, you know what? Uh, I need you to watch Fox News. Just watch it for one day. You actually become more embedded mm. in your own, mm -hmm. you know, your original belief systems that it actually has the opposite effect. Is that true? And and how do you explain you know, that? It's context is it's it's person and context dependent, but that that does often take place. Yeah, and that's usually because, you know, well, okay, I'll get into that. Let me. Uh, I, I'm. Do not forget David McCraney. We're going to talk about reasoning. Okay, so reasoning's next. Uh, okay. Very quickly, a belief is a, is a level of confidence in a fact-based statement. So, you know, it's a feeling. Like, that's strange to, I think a lot of people like to say we have to separate facts from feelings. That's impossible. Brains don't work that way. Uh, you have an, emo a, an emotional response that is just as outside of your control as, get, as feeling pain when you stub your toe, when you... Uh, or think about a concept that may or may not be true and you feel a level of confidence about that. If I 
tell you today is Tuesday and you feel like, I don't think it's Tuesday. I think it's Friday. Like your confidence in the state, the, the, your, your confidence level is different, right? Um, the, if I, uh, uh, if you walk outside and see a, a, some mud puddles outside your, your front door and you, you think it may have, it must have rained and you have some sort of confidence, uh, emotional response that is this confidence in this fact-based statement, but then you see it, there's a, a pipe has burst in the road and there's a leak. Your confidence in that fact-based concept goes down. Your confidence in this other concept goes up. Beliefs are sort of this sliding scale of confidence and propositional uh, concepts. And then a value is just like uh, the hierarchy of things we uh, of uh, where we think we should be putting our, um, our money, our effort, our time. Uh, for some people, though, that should be for eliminating one problem and not another, or should the money that we uh, put out to solve problems should go to this cause and not this cause. So that's a value. And all these things can be rearranged and they mm -hmm. all interplay attitudes or have relationships with that, with, with beliefs and values and vice versa and all around. It's a whole big mixy mess of brain goop doing stuff. Um, and a lot of times categorizing this stuff and defining it is just for the, per how it just helps us talk about it more than it actually uh, illustrates that these things are separate from one another in a categorical mm. way. Okay. So here's the problem that most people have when you get into an argument with someone over anything, whether it's their attitude, belief, or value, the intuitive thing to do is say, Hey, have you read this? Have you seen this? Have you, let me give you some links. Will you watch this video? Will you read this book? That's not what this person says. Well, this person, this expert, this expert, blah, blah, blah. And also that's what they're going to do. They're going to say, well, here's my expert and here are my facts, here are my things. And you end up having this proxy battle of hyperlinks that what's, so what's happening there psychologically is you're battling each other at the level of your conclusions and conclusions are just that. That's the, that's the conclu the conclusion that is when the processing chain, the very immense long chain of processing of human brain goes through before it settles on what it's going to think, feel, and believe concludes with this nugget of, you know, transient uh, confidence or attitude. And we're fighting each other at that level, which is, um, means we're not, we're not fighting each other at the level of how we reach those conclusions, which it's, I can't change your conclusion. It has concluded, it is done. And if we're having mm. this battle, we're not even having, we're not even having a discussion at all. We're, we're just throwing stuff at each other. And the reason we do that is because of something in psychology uh, called naive realism. Naive realism is the uh, sort of a catch-all term for um, the natural intuitive assumption that the way we think is the way to think. And that if anyone had seen the facts that we've seen, if anyone had the experiences we've had in life, they would naturally come to the same conclusions we've come to because how could they not? Which means all I have to do to get you to, to see things my way is expose you to the things that I assume you must not have been exposed to. And once you've been exposed to those things, you will naturally see things the way that I do. This is our immediate intuitive response. And it almost never works because wow. other people are motivated in, by things that we're not motivated by. Like they're their own person and they may have uh, a different identity that's at stake. They may have a different group that they're worried about being ostracized from. They may have financial obligations that we don't. They uh, even, they may have personal traumas that are so outside of the domain of our understanding that we don't, we, we have a, we're totally blind to the idea that yeah. these things could be things. And if they're not, that means that their way of reasoning is not our way of reasoning. What you're asking a person to do when you hand them these facts, figures, and links and hope that they just naturally snap into the way you see is you're expecting to copy paste your reasoning into their brain, which is impossible. That's an act. 
Like they have to actually reason their way. They have to go all the way back to the beginning, go through their processing chain and produce a new conclusion. So the only persuasive techniques that work are the ones that uh, task and challenge the other person and yourself in the process of going through a new chain of processing or a new chain of reasoning. So that brings us to the big idea. Reasoning. Of reasoning. Now, okay. you, now we're back there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a, ta- I'm a Perfectly tangent, done. tangent dancing dude. Um, <laughs> reasoning. So this is a very important principle in there's a, there's such a thing called reasoning. Uh, in if you have any, uh, experience with, uh, philosophy or logic or argumentation or politics, you've probably come across the concept of this big R reason, uh, propositions, you know, um, uh, all, uh, see, like, like the old Socrates stuff, like all, men, uh, uh, all, uh, all men have, uh, beards. Socrates is a man. Therefore Socrates has a beard, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So this is propositional mm. logic. Interesting. There's all, there's all sorts of things in, in reason and reason can be written out and it's, it's got its own language that looks like math. And it's a real thing. Logic and reason is beautiful, and it's an important concept of, of math and science and philosophy. It exists. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, in psychology, we don't talk about reason like we talk about reasoning, and the two can get conflated. Reasoning is literally just coming up with reasons for what you think, feel, and believe. And through the help of two immense researchers, and I cannot recommend this book enough. It's called The Enigma of Reason by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. Hugo Mercier was incredibly helpful with putting together How Minds Change. Uh, I, I interviewed him many times and asked him many questions, and it opened, it broke everything open for me once I saw this one aspect of things, which is mm. um, there was, in the early days of writing about this sort of pop psychology stuff, uh, This and these books still float around, there was this, sort of this like feverish um, uh, like indictment of human beings that said we are, we are flawed, uh, and irrational. Uh, and you look at all sorts of things from, from, from locking your keys in your car to sending an email to all the people you didn't to, to, to your entire company instead of to your proctologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's <laughs> all sorts of stuff that we can say, like, look how flawed and irrational we are. And it's also very easy to point fingers at other at people doing weird stuff in the world that we think is strange or believing strange stuff and say, well, that's because they are flawed and irrational. Hugo Mercy and Dan Sperber uh, don't like that. And I don't like it either now that I've, I've sort of fully ingratiated myself into their world. That's, um, it's not that we're flawed and irrational reasoners, it's that we're just biased and lazy. And that makes total sense because hmm. from an evolutionary standpoint, one of the things that we gained as an advantage as a species is the ability to communicate. And uh, there's a whole beautiful science and a lot of hypotheses about how this took place. But once we could exchange information with one another through uh, spoken language, written language, and so on, um, we, that gave us the, the ability to uh, organize toward collective goals in a way we never could before. And one of the most uh, beneficial parts of that is you can imagine like three people on a hill and if we're all looking in one direction, we, none of us can see what's going on behind us. If all three of us look in different directions, we have a nice world view of what's going on. But to do that, I have to really trust the person next to me is going to accurately deliver to me what they're seeing from their perspective. And in turn, in a reciprocal relationship, I'm going to tell them what I'm seeing. Even in the best of circumstances, people can be wrong. Uh, they can be incorrect about what they're seeing, uh, or they could have they could have like not a whole lot of experience and they could be seeing it 
and delivering it to you accurately, but their experience like leads them to infer things that you wouldn't infer or mm. an expert wouldn't infer. Yeah. So that's one thing that's that's that introduces a problem in that. But the other thing that introduces a problem is they could be they could lie. They could mislead you to their for their own ends. So once we developed the ability to communicate in this way and we had all these incredible advantages because as a group we could see things uh more clearly and then we could as individuals. Um there's they call this uh the trust bottleneck, which is that when when a individual says no, I don't think we should do it this way, or I see things differently, or I, I have I wish to affect the attitudes, values, beliefs of the people in my group, the trust bottleneck that would appear is that if everyone was too, was too um, uh, cynical or too guarded against misinformation, then we wouldn't be able to change our minds when we really needed to. And that's important for when you're trying to survive in environments from, you know, prehistory. So uh, we developed the, we actually literally evolved the ability to, to argue. And then, so argumentation is, is something that's very unique to human beings. We get, we can persuade other people to see things our way. Uh, I, th I think I, I even have a, yes, this is, this is a direct quote from the book. Uh, the ability to change our minds, update our priors and entertain other points of view is one of our greatest strengths and evolved ability that comes free with every copy of the human brain. Um, mm. and the point here is that, um, because we have this system, the only way you're going to persuade people effectively is if we return to the system, if we play on what the evolved response prefers, right? So all that out in the way, what I'm trying to say is reasoning is coming up with the reasons for what you think they don't believe. And that's really important in one of these environments because, uh, I want to persuade you, uh, that, the what that my perspective is is a good perspective and and that my suggestion is a good suggestion which means i'm going to try to generate reasons that are plausible and plausible means things that people in my trusted peer group would consider justified so yeah when we argue our cases we do so in a way where we try to justify things rationalize things and we try to do so in a way that we we intuitively understand this will persuade people in my trusted peer group because i don't want to be ostracized from that group mm. or kicked out and this sets up all the ways that we generate very biased and lazy reasoning and lazy the bias part is from our individual perspective and with all these identity goals in place but the lazy part is we always try to do the, the most justifiable thing. Can I tell you about a little study that demonstrates this is one of my favorite studies. Um, is, is that okay? I just want to ask of you course. because yeah. I feel like because I'm in ramble mode. Um, <laughs> the, so there's this great study that demonstrates how we just want justification is such a thing. Um, it's an old Tversky study. They had uh, people flip a coin. Uh, it, well, they didn't actually flip a coin. They had, they got a sheet of paper that said you have flipped a coin. And uh, if it comes up heads, you went dollars if it comes up tails you lose a hundred dollars and you start out i think with three hundred dollars virtually and then some people it goes one way some people it goes another then they, they then they ask w if i present this to you again uh would you take the same gamble depending on the and some people they, they it went heads some people went tails everyone chooses to flip again and when they ask why mm. would you do that this is the moment when these systems come online. This is the reasoning system coming online. I need, I now need to produce a reason for what I have said I'm going to do. And people who it came up in their favor, they said, I want to flip the coin again because I'm ahead so I can risk it. People who lost the flip, they said, I want to flip again because I need to win back what I lost. So win or lose, 
people can come up with a justification for continuing to play because they just are motivated to keep playing. And there's a whole reason for that, which is just the way that the brain works in a gambling situation. It doesn't matter. They want, they want to play again. Win or lose, you can come up with a justification to do so. Mm. So when we want to do something, we can come up with a justification for it. But it needs to be plausible to the person who's asking the question. So here's the crazy part of this experiment. They run it again, but they don't tell people the outcome of the flip. So they tell you, you have flipped a coin and it has come up heads or it has come up tails, but I'm not going to reveal it to you until you tell me, would you like to flip again? And in this scenario, more than 80% of people will not flip the coin. Mm. Now we already know from the first run that it doesn't even matter what it comes up. You're going to choose to flip again. But if I don't give you the information you can use as a justification, you will not make a decision because you can't. All decisions are... We don't make the decision that has the best. We don't make the decision that has the most information behind it. We don't make the decision that is best. We make the decision that is easiest to justify. And that is where the laziness comes in. We will always choose the easiest justification for our arguments in that reasoning dynamic. So all this comes together as into one point, which is when you're arguing, uh, when you're arguing with someone or you're, in a, or you're in a persuasive context, what's actually happening here are two brains using their reasoning sort of um, psychological mechanisms of reasoning to attempt to produce justifications for their current feelings and thoughts, behaviors, actions, or for some sort of future plan or goal, which means that a proper effective persuasive technique is going to engage that reasoning system. Not the, what it's going to start it from the beginning and move it back through its processing chain, not at the end. And that brings us to the two concepts, which I, highlight in the book topic rebuttal versus technique rebuttal there are two ways to engage in this uh i, I feel like I've, i need to to like take a second so that you can say, say something. <laughs> <laughs> because i and i'll but i'll get into topic and, and technique and tell you uh, i'll give you some practical advice uh but i'm interested to see if you have any thoughts or questions for you. yeah i think i think what's what's interesting about this is that there's so many complicated nuances so i'm thinking about you know, how you're explaining this, and I'm thinking about applying it in our everyday life. So if it is convincing my husband that we need okay. to go on this trip, we need to, you know, uh, uh, switch gears or switch schools for our kids, something like that, you know, and, and having an opposing opinion. But then you have, you know, really real life situations of family members, of friends that disagree with you wholeheartedly, Mm -hmm. on that. So understanding the logic, the reasoning, the belief system, you know, I'm curious to know about the social identities on how impactful is that? You've mentioned this a number of times, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, of, of how much that weighs in. And in that vaccine hesitancy, um, it was repeated over and over again that just opened my eyes and put all kinds of floodlights behind it of, of uh, the phrase, Social death is far greater than physical death. So how important a, I'm with you. Mm. How important are social identities? Okay. So when it comes to reasoning, changing people's minds, there are a bazillion studies uh, in sort of the 1950s, 60s, 70s of social science into sort of social identity. Um, there was that generation of psychologists were, tr were, trying to understand what was going on with like the Nazis basically. And they're like, how did, how did we do, how did that happen? And they did a lot of research into, um, coercion. They did a lot of research into, uh, 
um, falling in line and uh, uh, appeals to authority, that sort of thing, uh, conformity. And uh, a lot of that research came to some of the stuff, you know, has been replicated. And it's, if, if you took a psychology class a long time ago, I hate to tell you that the, the Milgram experiments and the uh, Stanford prison experiments, they have not hold up, held up well to scrutiny. I don't remember but, those, but yes. Okay, good. Well, then we won't repeat <laughs> them. But the, what's, what has held up w- well is our, everything that, that pointed to social identity being this major uh, factor. Um, the great sociologist Brooke Harrington uh, told me, that it was what you just mentioned, that um, – if there was an equals MC squared of social science, it would be social death is greater than physical death. Mm. That if it is your identity or your probably more properly put your reputation that is at stake, you would rather your physical body die than the sort of the representation you have in the minds of others that we call reputa- reputation. If you Why have a good reputation. Why is it repu- so overpowering? Why is that well, so the, It was because critical. from a, because we're a group, we are, uh, we live in a very in America, in the West. And is uh, this American? Is this a Western? No, no it's thought? human. It's very human. Very okay. primate is what this is. Because, mm-hmm. but we do have a culture in the United States and in the West in general in the modern era that is very individualistic. And I think that we like to assume, we like to think of ourselves as being islands, and that um, you know we actively choose who we are, what we feel, what we do, and we're not being influenced at all times by uh, cultural forces. None of that's true, but it's, 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 a, it's a feeling we have as a culture, and I understand why we have it. But the truth is, everything happening to you is, every, all your thoughts, feelings, and behaviors are being deeply influenced by, your surround, by the people around you and the dynamics of, the, of your, the microculture in your home and then the culture in your community and the culture in your region and so on. So much so that if you were to move to another location uh, in the United States within a year, many of your values and attitudes and beliefs would start to shift very dramatically mm. just from being around other people mm. who see things differently. I know p- people don't think that would happen, but it, the research is pretty clear on that. Um, and there's one of my favorite studies of all times was uh, they had these dudes, uh, uh, in a, <laughs> they had them fill out a questionnaire uh, and they had to walk down to the end of, they had, to, they had some blood drawn and then they had to go to the end of a hallway and hand in the questionnaire and the blood that was drawn. Um, but unbeknownst to them, they had there was a door uh, halfway through there to go into a lab, and they had an actor who was going to come out and pretend that they they didn't see the person walking to the end, and they bumped it together. But they give a big shoulder bump, and then they look in, in the eye, and the actor says "asshole," and then he walks away. And then at the when they turned in the questionnaire they draw blood again and the actual study taking place was to see what how did that affect people's uh, cortisol levels and adrenaline and all that kind of stuff from being from the shoulder bump so there's all men and uh, the but the 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 variable was that some of these men were people who had lived most of their lives in the northern united states and some of these were men who had lived most of their lives in the southern part of the united mm. states and what they found were the when they did the the debrief, the men from the north said, you know, they're like, what did it, what do you think about the guy that bumped you? And like, he was like, yeah, what a silly, what a, what an idiot. Who cares? Like he was, it was laughable. They, they thought it was a joke and their cortisol levels were, weren't really changed. Their adrenaline levels really weren't changed. Those, the, the people, the, the men who grew up in the south, when they asked like, what did you think of that person? They're like, man, any other day of the week? I, mean, I, I think I might have, I might have hurt that man. I might have put that man on the ground. <laughs> wow. How, how, da- how dare he? And then. Uh, their cortisol levels, their blood levels were maxed out. They, they had, maxed they, out. They, they really went into, I want 
I'm getting ready to fight and murder another human being because I'm this is a this is a moment where I've been challenged just from a simple insult and thing. Uh, there's a great book on this called The Culture of Honor by Dove Cohen, and it illustrates that the this this cultural lag has taken place. Most people uh, in the Southern United States, the culture that uh, the the culture that sort of uh, started that region up as a, uh, its micro civilizations were herding cultures from um, uh, regions in the UK where people uh, their livelihood was based off livestock. And one of the, unlike farming cultures, livestock cultures can have their livelihood stolen uh, by rustlers. And so they need to portray to the surrounding culture that if you cross me, I'll, I'll, the, the retribution will be immense, which is a way to deter people from stealing in the first place. Nobody's doing that anymore, but that cultural value has persisted. And it still mm -hmm. exists to the point that if you insult a Southerner in any way, I know this personally because I grew up in I grew up in the Deep South, and when I am in New York and someone honks at me, I get very angry. If I is that right? Uh, there's nothing I can do about it. It just happens, and I have to like think like, no, you, no, you know better. There's no reason to think this way. Yeah, I'm uh, wondering even about the the layer of cortisol in general that we're all pretty uh, anxiety ridden, we're all stressed out, and so I wonder how much of that plays into the laziness that you had referenced before. Yeah, of you know, of changing somebody's mind or even, you know, the group think, you know, of so, of so much yeah. of it is geographical, but you know, that that's that's a whole nother layer of <laughs> you is. know, like how how we process information, how we connect with each other from just Yeah, I use this levels. as an example because I want to and I apologize for for interrupting because I'm just this is my, I'm just very excited about all this. No, the, uh, you're good. <laughs> the, the, this I is use your show, as, David. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is your episode. I use this as an example to just illustrate how absolutely bound we are to culture and how bound we are to social social concepts, conventions, and, and the influence of people around us. I mean, your body, the molecules inside your body ch change and you have nothing you can, there's, you have no control over it. I mean, it's, it, I, if I was to be, if I was bumped in that hallway, I can imagine being like, ah, I'm, I'm, and there's, there are other people who grew up in other regions who don't have that response. So naive realism would lead me to believe that that's not natural. Like, like the default response is my response and the other person thinks the same thing. So the, these I use as an example to, to just to illustrate how deeply bound we are to culture and social uh, concepts, because the reason for that is because we are, uh, we survived in groups. And this is the long answer to your previous question about why would social death be greater than physical death? Mm -hmm. Because we survived as a species by caring more about the, about the, the health of the group than we did about the, any individual within the group. And if it comes to it, if we need to sacrifice ourselves for the, for the group, we have innate propensities toward that. And everything from war to running into a burning building to save a, a child, these are things that are, that are innate to us. Anything like shame or embarrassment um, are any feelings in that domain, uh, are parts of the system that helped us survive as groups. And there was a lot of intergroup conflict, which our group wasn't the only group. We lived in small bands of about 150 or fewer people for most of, the, of our evolution as a proto, as both proto humans and early humans. So there was a lot of, um, we needed to all constantly signal, are you in my group? Or are you in some other group? Mm -hmm. And I, my shame and embarrassment and feelings of uh, my fear of ostracism are only directed toward people in my group. I don't care if, how you feel about me because I'm not going to be ostracized from your group. And ostracism in that in that environment is death. 
I mean, if you're kicked, if you live in the, in the Serengeti or the jungle or the desert or any place environment like that, and you're kicked out of your group, you're dead. It's over for you. So you need to constantly be concerned about your reputation within your community. And so reputation management is one of the highest motivations in the human psyche. And mm. oftentimes what's happening when you are arguing with another person, what you're actually witnessing on their end is reputation management. They are very concerned about how the outcome of this interaction is going to play when it is uh, interpreted by people within their trusted group. They call them affinity groups in psychology, but they're their trusted peer group. So you need to stop right there. So, so reputation management is all the way at the very top of this. So if we're thinking about how do I change somebody's mind, knowing that reputation management is the highest, how do you methodically uh, uh, pursue that goal? Okay, this is where I'll get into it. And I, and I want to really emphasize how true this is. Uh, there are cultures where people commit suicide out of shame. There are moments in our own in 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 Western United States culture where people have, will end their lives out of shame. Uh, there are people who have refused to get vaccinated and on their deathbed. Uh, the last thing they're going to give up is their belief that vaccines are dangerous, or the or the last thing they're going to do is is even admit they have COVID if they are part of a community where that signals their loyalty to the group. We and the same is true for fact based statements like. If you're a flat earther, the last thing you can do is admit that the earth is not flat because that kicks you out of the group. I mean, so your repu reputation management and your, your adherence to wanting to stay within your the group of trusted peers is, is going to be far more powerful as a motivation than the pursuit of truth or even the pursuit of your own mortality. Uh, that's how high it is. So, which means that when you engage in a persuasive attempt, with David, someone, we're fucked. <laughs> we're not. We're not. <laughs> okay. We're not because we're not because we know this. Which means that you. I say this in the book, and I may, I'm paraphrasing myself, so I don't know how I exactly put it, but I, I believe this is something. I, That's okay. I, we're all going to read I, it. I, this is something I fundamentally believe. Which we'll is, all fact check you. Okay, cool. When you when you get frustrated over the fact that you can't persuade change people's minds, when you get frustrated that people believe things that you don't. And you don't see, be able to bring them over to your way. When you get persuaded, when you get frustrated that you have uh, political values that you can't seem to exp get other people to get on board with, your frustration is always directed at the other person. And I'm, a, I'm sorry, but you're the problem. You're, you are frustrated. It's like being frustrated that you can't get to the moon because all you ever try to use to get there is a ladder. Like, you're using poor techniques and poor tools and you're failing. And then you're blaming that on the other person being dumb or stupid or evil wow. or misguided or brainwashed. That's, a, that's an interesting reframe too, because I, I think that I that is how this. people feel like, why is that person so dumb? Why don't they, if they saw, you know, you said it before, if they saw, if they knew what I knew, they wouldn't believe that. Right. You're because, and, and I, I understand because if you're, if you don't, you, do, you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't know that there are ways of, of talking to people that are much more likely to reach the ends you're trying to get to, then sure, I can see why you, you the last thing you want to do is blame yourself. I understand. But let, let me, let's talk about the first thing. The first, the most, the highest motivation is reputation management, which, and because the high, and that motivation is because our strongest fear is, is ostracism. That means the very first thing you have to do, if we had to break these into steps, step Step one, I would say step zero is ask yourself why you want to do this. But then step one is going to be build rapport or establish rapport. 
Because if anything you communicate to the other person can be interpreted as you should be ashamed for thinking that, you should be ashamed for feeling that, you should be ashamed for believing that, you should be ashamed that that value is where it is, and then that's it. The conversation's over. Because if they sense that they will be shamed for changing their minds, or they sense that that being shamed is, is going to be an outcome of this interaction they're going to avoid it more than they would avoid a, a knife in your hand. They will, um, there is great research by, uh, um, Sarah Gimbel and, um, a, a group of neuroscientists. They put people on an MRI and they challenged their beliefs about a variety of different issues. One was like, did Thomas Edison invent the light bulb or can you see the great wall of China from space? Uh, and then they would, Ask them how they, if they believe that, how strongly they believe that. And then they would show them like, actually Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb, uh, or you can, um, you can see all sorts of stuff from space, not just the Great Wall of China. And in fact, the Great Wall of China is not that easy to see from space. Little trivia facts like that. People would go, oh, I didn't know that. And the brains, the brain scanner would, would notice how much blood was going into different regions of the brain. It was pretty normal. But if you challenge them on something like, um, should there be gun control or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and they'd ask the question something like, are, are they would say it would be like, uh, abortion rights or gun control. They'd ask them similar fact-based statements within those domains. Some of those statements would be things that people on both sides of the issue believe are factual, but are not actually true. And then it would challenge them about those. When those issues were challenged, the amount of blood that would rush into the default mode network of the brain was the same, this is exactly what Sarah Gimbel told me, it would look exactly like what would happen if they had suddenly confronted a bear in the woods. They had they had a, an intense visceral bodily reaction because that motivation, that they're avoiding the fear of ostracism. They're avoiding the death of their social identity as strongly as they would be feeling like a threat to their physical body. And that's going to happen. And you've, we've probably all experienced this in, mm-hmm. in a debate with someone sure. who challenges something that we feel very strong about, right? Then the feeling, the the strong feeling of feeling strongly about an issue is the feeling that you may lose some reputation points and that you may be ostracized for the most part. For most of the issues that I would consider wedge issues, that's actually what's taking place. It's not true for everything, but true for a lot of them, right? So the first thing you need to do is, is establish rapport. Um, you need to assure the other person not out, assure the other per- to the other person not out to shame them and ask for consent to explore their reasoning. Uh, there are and there's several different tech, techniques in street epistemology. Uh, you you assure the other person that you're not out to shame them, uh, and you want to explore the reasoning. This is the same true as in smart politics. Same is true in smart politics and deep canvassing. Same, it's the same first step in all three. Um, and Misha Globerman, who is a negotiation communication expert, uh, he opened my eyes to the fact that establishing rapport may not it may not happen in just one conversation. Your history with the other person has to be taken into account. If this is your dad or your mom or your, you know, your sister and you're not on great terms with them, you have to get to a place where you can talk about issues before you jump right in because they may consider you a them, not as a family member, but as they have this subculture that they're a part of and their reputation is tied to and their identity is tied to. And if they consider you outside of that, you're in another group. They have no interest in ingratiating themselves to you, and they also face suffer enormous social costs for in, taking on ideas they know will signal to their group that they may be a traitor. Defecting, be, right. Yeah. <laughs> so you must establish rapport. And establish, to establish rapport, you have to 
do sort of the best way to establish rapport at the level of a primate is to engage in activities or engage in conversations that sort of take on the uh, the veneer of of reaching a common goal together. You know, you can do that in conversation by saying, "Hey, what do you th- have you uh, what do you think about this?" Uh, uh, this new tax bill coming down the line, you know, you, you can both get on the same page of, of hating the, hating the IRS or something, right? Uh, you, what do you, uh, Hey, I, I need help with, uh, putting, installing this, uh, this, uh, new sink doodad or, or I, uh, could you, I, I have to, uh, cook this uh, meal for this reason. And I have just so much time. Could you help out with it? Um, there are all sorts of things you can do that will put you into a dynamic with the other person, which you're working on a shared goal. Um, and there's nothing unethical about that, especially if you're actually trying to reach, to do something that you could use the other person's help with my dad. It, I, we installed a winch on my truck and uh, I, 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 this is directly from the research. This reason I did it. I was like, I, I need to go do something with my dad where we work together in a way that has nothing to do with our, our subcultures and our politics and stuff. You have opposing um, politics. Oh yeah. Well, he's dad. still in Mississippi. He's still, you know, he's got a lot of, uh, of values that I don't. And a lot of, uh. Uh, uh, he's, he's, uh, beholden to groups that I am not. Okay. So, um, but you can also do that with a stranger, like, you know, establishing rapport up, up early, uh, early on in the conversation, you just, is are things like, you know, just simply being nice. And mainly you want to, well, show the other person that you're going to listen to them. You're going to see them. You're going to, you actually are interested in what they have to say. You're not just waiting and getting ammunition to, to, to shoot at their, shoot at them within their mm-hmm. heart and their beliefs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, so the ability of rapport is, is immensely important. That first step, um, and frame the conversation after that is going to be, you and I are going to try to solve a mystery together. And the mystery is going to be, how did you come to this conclusion or what, what is underlying your confidence in the issue? Ask for consent. Ask for lots of consent. And uh, once you have that, you can move on to, to the second step. So I have notes over here because there's three different techniques. But um, I can tell you that um, they all pretty much work the same way, which is – but it depends on what you're working on. Let's say it's vaccine hesitancy. What you're really working on there is an attitude. So you're going to want to move into sort of motivational interviewing techniques, and you're going to want to move sort of directly to um, their intentions for behavior. Uh, but if it was a fact-based thing, like is the earth flat or something, then you could just ask for a claim. So either way, uh, you'd want to sort of in the beginning, if, let's say you're trying to work on a behavior, you want somebody to vaccinate, you'd say on a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to do that? If you were working on a fact-based claim or belief, you would say, okay, uh, and, the, and you would ask that up front, like, what is it that you believe uh, you'd like to, to talk about today? And let's say they, they think that uh, karma or it, karma determines the fate of all human actions or that the uh, the moon is actually a secret nazi space station uh, <laughs> that's a real conversation i had with someone once um <laughs> the uh you would you would ask on a scale from one to ten how strongly do you believe that you're at so what you're it's these scales are very important in the beginning because they quantify your emotional response they are they quantify they quantify your confidence they quantify where you are on a scale of positive or negative um uh, valence on the attitude, right? Um, the, this is such an important step because this engages the, the other person in metacognition. And I was talking about the difference between technique rebuttal and topic rebuttal. Tech, topic rebuttal is when you just, uh, this is, topic rebuttal is fine when you're like a lawyer or a scientist or an engineer or 
uh, an academic of some kind, when, when both people are on the same page as far as like they're playing by the same rules, um, which means they, they share the same epistemology, they're using the same method to, to come to the conclusions that they come to, um, then you can just lob facts at each other. It's safe in those worlds because you're, on, you're using the same epistemology. Um, hmm. Plus, you trust each other. It's vetted. And you have other people who are going to check your notes. Um, it is expected. Uh, and I would note that it's also safe in those groups because you suffer no shame for doing so. Uh, in fact, you get social points for engaging this kind of behavior in those environments. The um, top technique rebuttal, on the other hand, is just is, is asking a person to explore their own reasoning chain, which is, which is what I, think, I feel like you should stay in. So the Socratic method is an example of a technique rebuttal. Uh, and these... These other persuasive techniques are sort of taking the Socratic method and adding things we've learned from psychology and neuroscience and everything in between to give them a more robust and easy to follow step-by-step paint-by-numbers thing. So yeah, I'd ask, ask their, the, from 1 to 10 uh, where they are on that scale. This helps them engage in metacognition. They'll start thinking about their own thinking. And for most people, we've never done this. Let's do it. We can do this together, okay? Okay. Allison, Allison what, what's like the last, what's the last movie What's the last full full length movie you watched? Encanto. 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 So, did you like it? Or I loved it. it. On a on a scale from one to ten, uh, what what would you what would you rate it? I thought it was a ten. Well, why why a ten and not like say an eight? I think because it uh, it 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 addressed so many social values in a way that became so relatable to each character. So each character um, had special gifts that they were given, some magical gifts. And those magical gifts, they felt like if they didn't have those magical gifts, they would not be special. And I felt, and there was one family member that was not blessed with gifts Mm. and felt like she was special because she was around it, but but really struggled with what is her gift. And I just felt like it was very universal. Mm. Is, uh, so do you, uh, is this, you watch a lot of movies like that? Mm, sometimes I have kids. So the Disney movies are. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if, if you think that that character uh, hadn't been in the movie and it was just about gifts and stuff, they, had, they didn't have that subplot. Do you think you'd still give it a 10? Probably not. I felt like the cartoon aspect of it was, made it universal, made it palatable, made it uh, palatable for both adults and children where mm-hmm. the message was strong. But if it was a regular movie, I think um, it, it would probably be a little more difficult to achieve. Hmm. So I'll stop here because you can see like we're already doing it, right? Do you see yeah. how, how this changes the way we have a, we talk about anything? Like I, change it from the movie to some topic that's contentious. Yeah. And by asking, I was you afraid to, of what you were going to, no, I, I was, I was feeling myself about to, <laughs> I did this with a, 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 a FBI agent once and, and we got into like some deep stuff and I was like, wow, this is, you have to be careful with this technique. I have a really good story about the end of the book that I'd like to share with you when we, when we sum things up about how I chose not to use this technique. And, and I put it in the book as an example of when you should and shouldn't use it. But notice that, when we were talking just then, it was very easy to, to get your number, right? Boom. Even if you had never really considered how you feel about it, mm-hmm. uh, it could be some, it could be something that you, let's say you like, you love tiramisu. And I was like, well, on a scale of one to 10, how much would you say you mm-hmm. love it? And, 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 you, and you might, somebody might be like, mm, I don't know, an eight. And like, like the, those feelings, if a person says zero or 10, 
you can pretty much guarantee they haven't thought about it very much because there's really no because <laughs> there's really no such literally no such thing as being a zero or a ten. But the that's really a very like binary black white one all or nothing yeah. kind of thing. And, and we don't generally have that feeling about anything. Even like the people we love in our lives, you know, we're not at a hundred. We're, we're still we're hard ninety nine. <laughs> right, <laughs> like right, there right. Are things, but like the if there's if they're not zero or a ten, if they're somewhere in the middle. Um, you can see that little hesitation, like mm, that, that, that moment's important. There's metacognition taking place. Mm, give it a little bit. I mean, they're, they're feeling that for the first time and, and trying to quantify it and trying to put it in, they're trying to articulate the ineffable. Then if you take it one, so this is that's important. That engages that active processing. And then the next step is you say, you're asking for their reasoning. I just asked you to justify that to me. So you started going into that that thing, like you were thinking about reputation management, you're trying to create an, a, a, a reason for why you thought, felt, and believed that I would find plausible, but more importantly, people in your trusted peer group would find plausible, yeah. defensible, defensible to the people whose opinions you care about. And I, and what that, that's fine. I want you to do that. That's, we are now entering an actual conversation about this that can go somewhere because we can solve the mystery together of why you actually feel this way. I want to get, I'm going to help you get to what actually led to that feeling that you're, that you're having. But what's great is we often in our initial volley, we come up with just the most biased and lazy thing we can think of <laughs> to explain how we I'm feel. I'm sure I'm guilty. <laughs> There's something in psychology called the, the toupee effect, which is uh, we only notice things that suck when they when the thing that sucks is salient and noticeable. So, and that, that'll become our reason for not liking something. So, like, uh, people would like. I think when people didn't like, like a, uh, let's say, uh, like the like the Star Wars prequels, they would they would they would say like, oh, they just look like a video game. Like that, that's the toupee effect, you know. We're like that's the most salient thing, and I can blame. Uh, but at the same, or they'll say, well, they won't even say that. They'll say there's too much CGI in it. Like I remember the, the Transformers movies, they're like, there's too much CGI in it. But then like, you know, they love the Avengers movies and that's like, it's, car, it's basically CGI, a right, cartoon. Right. <laughs> right. So that it's, that's not it. That's, uh, or they'll say the CGI was bad. It's, it, it's the thing that you notice that you can notice becomes the thing that is the, uh, the reason, for, you know, if they'll say CGI sucks and that's why I don't like movies like that. But see, the only CGI you say sucks is the CGI that you can notice. If it's not noticeable, then you forget about it. So, when you produce a reason for why you think you're going to believe, I know as the person on the other side of this, that that's probably not the actual reason. That's just the first one that, that you put out because that's how we operate. That's how we use, that's how social dynamics work. So I'm, what I'm going to do is accept that. I'm not going to make you feel weird. I'm going to repeat it back to you. I'm going to paraphrase. I'm going to reflect. And then I'm going to go a step further into it and try to get deeper into it to find the real reason for why we're doing this because you probably don't know it. Most of us don't know the, and this is the core principle of you are not so smart, my, my podcast and everything, is that uh, the antecedents of our thoughts, feelings, behaviors are outside of our, uh, into, outside of our introspection powers, which means the narratives we generate to explain ourselves to ourselves are mostly fictional, but we live by those narratives, and that's pretty much That's the, so crazy that's, that that's our memories <laughs> are mostly fictional. That's the introspection illusion in a nutshell. Um, it's easy to come up with an explanation for yourself. But that explanation is almost always just sort of uh, a a very uh, PR based uh, fictional narrative that makes you feel good about who you are. That's fine. So huh. after this one to ten thing, after I get you to talk to me a little bit, uh, these are some really good questions. Uh, if it's about behavior, like like vaccination, um, 
you would ask a person if they're very, let's say I asked you, how likely are you vaccinate? And you said you're like um, a two out of a scale with a 10. I could ask, why not lower? This is a motivation mm. technique because why not lower? Because you, did, huh. you didn't, you didn't say zero, which means that you have a little bit of something in there. And I, and it's very important that I don't get you talking about all the reasons you wouldn't vaccinate. That's not what we're talking about here. I want you to talk to me about reasons you would. So I ask you, why not lower? Because now I've directed the conversation so that you can explore. Why didn't you say zero? Because you didn't say zero. And with, we can get into it from there. And now you're going to start introspecting and coming up with reasons, much similar to the way you were talking about that movie. Um, with a, a fact-based claim, it may be okay to say, why not, why not higher? You know, if you like, do you think UFO aliens and this person says, yeah, I'm kind of a seven on that. Well, that's not a 10. So I would say, why not? Why, why weren't you higher? Because because you see the, the intentions are a little different on my end of what we're trying to explore. Yeah. Um, other things. So from fascinating. This, it would take, take forever to go through all of it. But the, you, uh, that's, the, that's a good way to just get started. I think anybody could use those to get started. Um, it's also important to clarify definitions during these conversations. If another person and I are talking about politics. In my mind, politics might be representative democracy where people get together and the ideals of the founding fathers, whatever I think. The other person might think politics is just a group of people in cigars in the dark room dividing up the country in little pieces before golf. Like <laughs> your, defini your definition and my definition may be different. And so even though, so when we're using the same words, actually be having the conversation that we think we're having. So it's very important to always clarify definitions. And when the other person clarifies their definitions, use their definitions, not yours. Um, and then um, the main point here is ask what reasons they have to hold their level of confidence or ask what reasons they have to uh, do or do not engage in behavior or feel a certain thing. And then just work that out deeper and deeper. And the last thing you want to do is ask, like, how did you come to that level of confidence? Like, what method are you using to to reach that level of confidence? And you just listen and you summarize and you repeat. And what will happen naturally is the other person on their own in a very safe way, in a very private uh, way, they will feel that feeling of cognitive dissonance that will lead them to want to resolve it so that they can update and their their uh, reasoning to reach an actual conclusion. What might be happening in this conversation is they form their first true opinion. They never they didn't even have an opinion about this until the conversation. Uh, they were just operating sort of on an autopilot opinion that they assumed they had. We can believe we have an opinion and 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 we can believe we've thought something out and live by that, and honestly, not even have ever really deeply considered it. And in the consideration of it. Oftentimes, we will update and change our minds. And it's also important to remember, if you change by 2%, that's change. change is, is, a 2% change can lead to an 80% change later. If your goal in a conversation is to completely flip someone or 180 them, like you're really going to get disappointed. Uh, that happens sometimes, but it, it's the little bit of change. The incremental change is what you're aiming for. What you're, what you're aiming for most of all is to continue the conversation. Like, uh, like hopefully you'll have 12 conversations about this and things really get interesting there. And then if, if you have, if you're doing one of those internet arguments where you just want to like drop bombs on people and walk away, you're never going to have another, you're, you're going to burn out from that conversation eventually and be like, I agree to disagree. Like, and that's the, that's what I would avoid most of all. Oh we should, my goodness. It's fine to agree to disagree. It's not fine to walk away from the conversation. I want you to have a different perspective than I do. I want you to have values that are different from mine. I want you to have experiences and anxieties 
and fears that don't match mine, because I want to add your perspective to my perspective to get to the truth of the matter. And it's in the combination of these perspectives that we, that's the only way we have any opportunity to understand what's going on around us. And then these kinds of persuasive techniques are going to, as you are engaging with the other person, you're going to change too. That's the thing. You both update your priors to a better understanding of the nature of what's going on around us. That's what makes it ethical and moral okay in my mind. David, you just built a bridge to answer the question, honestly, that of how do we connect? Like, how do we unite? How do we come together? Is it possible? To me, it seems like it is a little bit Pollyanna to think, you know, we're, we're going to come together. It just seems so freaking polarized. But you just... Uh, laid out a bridge. So I thank you for that. Um, tell me, what do you know that you wish other people could know through this, through all this study, through all of this research, through all of this thought? No one is unpersuadable. No one is unreachable. No one, there's no such thing. Like there's no one who is beyond change, uh, yourself included. There's nothing you think you can believe right now that doesn't, couldn't use a little work especially the things you feel very confident about. Mm. Uh, you don't know what you're wrong about. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, and um, the people on the other side of an issue that you feel strongly about are people who are, who believe things that are, are not supported by the evidence uh, is no matter how unreachable they may seem. That's not the case. There's no such thing. If we couldn't change our minds, who, as Hugo Mercier told me, like uh if we couldn't change our minds, arguing, arguing wouldn't exist. We wouldn't have evolved this ability uh, in the same way that if, uh, it was, if we couldn't, if we didn't have, if we couldn't see, then we would eventually evolve eyes away. <laughs> there would be, we'd be like cave, some sort of cave dwelling fish that doesn't eat eyes, which exists. So the fact that we can change and can persuade other people and can um, solve the mysteries of how we come to conclusions and sort of try to figure out what is the better way to go about living in this very complex uh, and chaotic epistemic environment that we find ourselves within in the modern era. Um, just because all these things are frustrating doesn't mean that they're impassable. Uh, I, I feel that very strongly and I'm very optimistic to the point of almost being a Pollyanna about all this stuff. But I feel like, you know, we're just living in an era of new technology, new cultural uh, conventions as a result of that technology. And this has happened many times through human history and we just are lucky or unlucky, depending on your perspective, to be the ones that have to sort it out. And it'll probably be a three or four generational spread of becoming, um, of building a literacy for these, um, this new epistemic. Wow. Three or and four probably, generations. I say we've got about a hundred years of work to do. Uh, but each one of each generation is going to do a little bit of that work together and We'll figure it out. And some institutions will survive. Some will not. Some cultural concepts will survive. Some will not. Some norms will shift drastically and some won't. And at the end of it, we will, this, this madness period of time, this chaos period of time, this period of time where it seems like the truth is in question, uh, it'll sort itself out. We'll find a level, we'll find the level but, because this has happened many times. This happened every single, this happened with the printing press. This happened with written language. This happened with the invention of complex economic environments. This happened with, uh, the advent of trains. This happened with the advent of steam. This happened with the advent of the industrial revolution. This has happened when we got VHS tapes. <laughs> this, this keeps happening. Um, for, and, um, and we always sort it out. That's not to say that in that cultural, like 
a line of uh, of change. There were wars and there were revolutions and there were all sorts of horrible outcomes that took place and all that. And I'm Sometimes. thinking about Thanksgiving dinner, you know, like I'm thinking right. of how to do this. You know, like if, if it is the three or four generation span, it is a long term collective uh, evolution that has to happen. And I'm thinking about, you know, how do we do this in our interpersonal lives? So I thank you for putting the the framework, because I think we want to figure out where is our place in the story? Can we make this better in a way where we don't feel attacked too. Oh, like, then, oh, then, okay. I have a quote from my science okay. uh, hero, <laughs> James Burke for this. Um, I'm going to paraphrase him because I don't have it in front of me, but James Burke said, uh, uh, there's nothing in this world that you can't understand as long as it's explained to you clearly enough. Um, mm. And so with that in mind, uh, what is it that you should try to, to understand and he said uh well whatever it is that you want to change about the world that's where you should start uh, i believe that very strongly uh i don't think there's anything is outside our said. grasp yeah i don't think there's anything outside our grasp and if there's something in this world that you you feel like maybe you have you maybe where you position in the world you have a unique uh you understand it better than other people like um if you're uh lgbt you, you know about lgbt issues and People don't. Uh, if you're a person of color, same thing, right? If you're a person who works in tech or a startup, you know the problems there that other people might not. You might be aware of problems in the world that you think need solving or changes you think need to, to take place that you are privileged in a, in a sort of uh, upside down kind of way, privileged to have a front row seat to those things. Which so, And to change them, you need to understand them deeply. Or maybe you just recently learned about something that you are appalled by and or that you feel like could improve the general tenor of the human experience. That's the thing you need to try to become uh, uh, pretty up to date on. And there's nothing about that that you can't understand and, and try to change. And then once you have that, I recommend looking into the science of persuasion and how people actually change. And or uh, your book, how minds change. <laughs> yeah. Tell us that. Uh, tell <laughs> us. And at the end of all that, buy this great book. I just heard yeah. How um, how people how can people find you and consume your work? How can people buy the book? Uh, so yeah, you can pre-order the book everywhere. It's just called How Minds Change. Uh, you can keep up with my stuff. Uh, I have a bi-weekly, uh, uh, every other week podcast called uh, You Are Not So Smart. That's also the name of my first book. <laughs> I the love the name of your, is, wait, what is the other book? Uh, you Are Less you are Dumb. Now less, you Are Now Less Dumb is the, is the, is the sequel. <laughs> so smart. Uh, but all my stuff is under You Are Not So Smart. Uh, and the you in that, of course, is me and everyone else included. It's the universal you. Uh, and it's all about unity through humility from understanding just how bizarre we are we are a person um and then you can find me on twitter uh at david mcgrain my website with all that stuff on it keep up with all the stuff and pre-order directly from it it's just davidmcgrain.com awesome thank you so much david this was fantastic you're solving problems i solving I, world I, problems i just i only endeavor to solve more problems than i create if i can just back <laughs> this out good to go. that's a good one thank you <laughs> What I loved about David is his unrelenting pursuit of how people's minds work and the science behind persuasion. His work is ever fascinating and so, so freaking helpful. I highly recommend you grab his book, How Minds Change, and subscribe to his podcast, You Are Not So Smart. I've linked it in the show notes. As for me, 
thank you for your kind reactions to last week's solo cast on my origin origin story. Origin, my origin story. I've got some really incredible stories about big ass changes coming up in this series. So make sure you're subscribed, leave a review while you're there and share the series. If you want more, follow me on Instagram and at allisonhair.com. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.